absolutely. It depends on the uh, COR of the flagstick, so the Coefficient Restitution flagstick. In U.S. Opens, I'll take it out, and uh, every other tour event, when it's uh, fiberglass, I'll leave it in and bounce that ball against the flagstick if I need to. Welcome back, podcast patrons, to another episode of Leave the Pin Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Dan, and I've got my co-host with me, the USGA's favorite son, Scott. Scott, what's the good word? Uh, I may be their favorite son, but they are currently my favorite golf organization after last weekend. So it's a feelings mutual. Indeed it is. I think that's all around for the entire Leave the Pin family. So this episode is going to focus solely on our visit to the USGA house and museum. And you might say to yourself as you're listening to this, well, gosh, it's going to be kind of boring to leave the pin crew just discussing their time at the museum. But when we tell you what behind-the-scenes stuff we were able to experience, the things that we actually can tell you about, um, I think you will change your mind. Scott, right off the bat, when I told you we got the invite from Janine Driscoll, who is head of their PR and media relations, what were your first thoughts? Uh, well, my first thought was, um, the USGA actually is interested in having us come and talk about it. Uh, that's, that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, it definitely then, shows, definitely shows a little bit of traction on our part too. Yeah. And then my, my next thought was, uh, you know, I've been meaning to go to this museum, so I'm actually really excited to go. So that, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because one of the things that we talked about with Janine and Hillary Kronheim, who is the director of the entire museum, is the fact that you have this treasure trove of golf memorabilia, trophies, artifacts that literally tell the living history of the game of golf. It is located as close to a major metropolitan area without being in one as you possibly can, right? In Liberty Corner, New Jersey, what, 30 miles outside of Manhattan? Am I right, Scott? That's what they said, so yes. Okay. So it blows my mind how many golfers, A, don't know it's available, and B, don't know that it's open to the public. When I posted on Instagram that we were going, people said, oh, you must have like a private invite. Did you get private tickets? Is it a private event? I said, no, you can do the same stuff as us for a $10 entry fee or half that if you're a USGA member. You can you can go and explore. Now, are you going to get a guided tour from the media relations director and the and the director of the USGA museum? No, you're not. Are you going to be able to, you know, to to step foot in the vault and see artifacts that no one else will see? No, you won't, but you can get 90% of what we got there. Um, now I've been to the museum before. I took one of my oldest sons, well, not one of, but my oldest son, um, a few years ago while they were in the stage of building the Jack Nicholas room. And I know you've got a funny story about that later on. Um, and it was fantastic even for a, let me see, it must've been eight or nine at the time, you know, a child under 10 years old could enjoy it just as much as someone in their forties, someone in their sixties, eighties, whatever age. I mean, there's something for everyone. So First impressions for you, Scott, because I had been there. So, so those first impressions for me, uh, you know, were, were done five, six years ago. What did you think when you pulled up, uh, when you first stepped foot into the museum? Give me kind of your thoughts and, and expectations versus reality. So uh, actually, I, there was not really a whole lot of difference between expectation and reality. I had, had read about it online uh, a few times and, and really thought about, like, actually making the trip, but just never was able to do it. Um, the thing that that kind of struck me as I was driving up is how much it is exactly like a golf course clubhouse, like pulling up to it. It feels like you're pulling up to uh, a fancy golf course clubhouse. And I, I'm sure that that was somewhat intentional on the USGA's part in, you know, purchasing that property. But I mean, they definitely nailed kind of that feel as you pull up, as you kind of pull around that circle. Um, I was just looking for the bag drop, really. Yeah, no, you're right. One of the things that always impresses me when going there is the guest parking takes you on the driveway right in front of the house. Now, the, the front of the house now was actually originally 
the back of the house, um, you know, back in the day when 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 the family had lived there in the early 1900s. Um, but you pass you pass right by. I mean, it, it, it's like you shouldn't be there. You shouldn't belong there, but it's accessible to you. Mm-hmm. One uh, of the absolutely. other things that uh, that struck me, and I know as a as a history buff, you know, you you knew the answer to this. I didn't. I was just, just a fact that I was like, wow, that's pretty awesome. But the same guy that did a ton of the monuments in Washington, D, excuse me, Washington D.C., is also the architect of this house. And and then what what Hillary and Janine were saying is that a lot of the guests they get almost five seven hundred guests a year that they get are not even golfers. They're just architectural history fans to come and see the intricate detail woodwork, the floating staircase, um, you know, the long grandiose hallway where the USGA has their kind of, you know, roaming exhibitions. I thought that was extremely interesting. Uh, I definitely agree. And again, going back to that kind of like clubhouse feel, like, uh, again, if you, uh, and I've never been in one of those like fancy private course clubhouses, but I almost get the feeling that that's, that's what it's like. I mean, obviously, you know, you have your locker room and your grill rooms and things like that. But like just walking into one of those places, I almost feel like that would be the what it's like. You walk in, you know, there's someone greeting you at the door. There's, you know, really nice, comfortable places to sit down, uh, you know, really impressive floating staircases. And again, you know, like you said, it, it is an, an architectural um, uh, showplace as a as it were, because it was designed by, a, you know, a famous architect. And again, it's not surprising that this is a, a place the USGA would choose as their showcase because of that reason. So before we had arrived, um, as is very apropos for us when we're going to play golf, whatever, Scott and I were discussing what we were going to wear. You know, do we do we dress up in golf gear, you know, sans spikes? Um, we just go completely casual. So, you know, so, we went with kind of polos and leave the pin podcast gear, um, as our outfit for the day. And just, uh, cause, uh, my wife always, you know, laughs at me when we do that. Uh, you know, I, we were, were texting back and forth and she's like, oh, who are you texting with? I was like, Dan, she's like, what are you planning out your outfits for the museum? She's like, uh, Yeah. <laughs> So she gets it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's been something that's been going on for, uh, you know, for 20 plus years now, but, um, you know, it's, it's the USGA, like Scott said, it does have the air of an ultra private stuffy course. However, once you walk into the reception and, you know, small, very small gift shop area, I wish there was more honestly to purchase, but uh, when you walk in and, and Karen greeted us and, you know, even the security guards were affable, like every single person there is just a golf nerd. They just they absolutely love it. And it goes from like, oh, the USGA makes the rules and, you know, they are the hoity toity upper crust of private clubs. And, you know, they hold their um their their opens at all these upper crust clubs like Wingfoot and Shinnecock and, uh, you know, and, and I know Pebble's not private, but, you know, for 550 bucks or 600, whatever they're banging you for now, that's as close to private as a public course gets. You think that the USGA is something that they're not. And one thing that became readily apparent to us was the fact that they are just golf people. They just happen to have, in our opinion, some of the coolest jobs in the world and a lot of influence in the game of golf, but they're just golf people. I mean, they're you and I doing a job for the greater good of the game. Uh, I, and again, I won't speak to every USGA employee. The, you know, the few that we met that day uh, could not have been less stuffy. Um, and it could not have been more personable and could not have been more opposite what one would think would be the, the governing body of the, you, you know, golf in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you talk to so many people and, uh, you know, we even got messages on, on Instagram and one of them was interesting. It was like something along the lines of, 
The USGA is not the first organization I would think to go to when I start in the game of golf. And I'm like, wow, really? Because to, to me, to you and I, the way we grew up, like the USGA is the game of golf. You know, like the USGA is, is everything that golf embodies. So I'm wondering if somewhere along the line, they lost their foothold, they lost their way with, with the casual fan. And, you know, we are not employed by them. We, we, we got nothing, you know, from them. There's no gifts or services. And I can tell you with, with sincerity that they should be the first stop for you. I don't think they should be the only stop. I'm an enormous fan of getting information from different sources. But if you want to know the actual rules of the game and you want to know uh, history of the game and why those rules are implemented, then then spend a little time researching the USGA. Become a member. I mean, hell, it's like 25 bucks right, to become a member of the USGA. You get a cool little bag tag, that's whatever. You get the rules of golf, eh, that's whatever. But there's tons of discounts. You get the quarterly email magazine publication. But then you get a U.S. Open hat from the U.S. Open venue every year. Like, that alone is worth $25 in and of itself, you know? Right, and and it's always at a, you know, a pretty cool golf course. Most of the time, the logo is pretty decent. So... Just you know, add it to your hat collection. And yeah, exactly. And then everything else you get is free. Because if you go and you if you were to go to the U.S. Open and go to the merch tent to buy a hat, it would be more than twenty five bucks. Yeah, it'll be it'll be thirty bucks if you get to the U.S. Open. And, and then the fact is, you have to get to the U.S. Open. And you know, quite honestly, for you and I this year, well, that's easy. But last year at Pebble, that requires a lot of legwork from someone living on the East Coast. Exactly. All right. So let's let's give people a little bit of rundown of how the museum is set up and kind of some of the things that they'll be able to see there, some of the things that we liked. And then, I mean, let's get into, Scott, what everyone wants to hear about and has been messaging us about. And that's going into the USGA vault, but, but, you know, like any good episode, we're going to make you wait on that just a little bit longer. Um, you know, so you enter the museum, Karen greets you or whoever is there, you enter in the reception area and to the right is the Arnold Palmer room. And to the left is the Bob Jones room. Um, the Arnold Palmer room is, is awesome. I mean, it's, it's super cool. I'm an enormous fan of the King. He's a Pennsylvania guy. The two coolest things in that room, and I think if we pick out one thing in each room or so, that that was awesome. The two coolest things was the art installation where this artist um, did a a sketch of Arnold Palmer, but not with line work or shading. The entire Arnold Palmer face, head, and neck bust is made out of words that are based upon things that Arnold saw or or that Arnold embodied in his lifetime. And it is so detailed. I think I'm going to get this correct in saying the artist was able to complete about eight to 10 words per hour. And the, the installation itself is made up of something like, uh, I, I think it's like 9,800 words in order to get this picture of Arnold. And there is this interactive electronic kiosk that tells the history of it. And you can zoom in on different areas and, and, it magnifies it and shows you exactly what the words say. Uh, that was mind blowing, especially to understand how many hours that artist put in to that drawing. The the people who have a mind like that who can come up with the idea for that in their head, like I, I just marvel at that even ability to think that creatively, um, because. If you and again, I think we maybe had a picture up on the Instagram at one point. If you see this thing uh, from afar, it just looks like a really cool drawing of Arnold Palmer. But as you get closer and closer and closer, you start to see like, oh, it looks like there's something written in there. And then when you go onto that electronic kiosk that you mentioned and you see like all the the detail that went into it, just the the work that must have gone into even just thinking of how to set this up. Uh, it just mind blowing, um, and it really does. I think exemplify how much how important Arnold Palmer is as a personality 
you know, both to golf and just in general as, you know, someone who's, you know, who, you know, exemplifies, you know, charity and things like that. And I think it's a, a well, um, a well-placed tribute to someone of the importance of Arnold Palmer to the game of golf. Yeah. And the cool thing is it's front and center. As soon as you yep. even get into the reception area, it's front and center. It, it, it draws you in and it makes you want to like touch the buttons. You know, I, I, I explored it last time. So I went to different things in that room, but Dan who went with us train on main Dan, um, I mean like beeline right towards it and was just blown away with yes. the intricacy of what's going on with that. I mean, it's, uh, it's super, super cool. The, the other thing that I loved in that room was business cards that Arnold Palmer had kept from famous Americans. And, and I said this in the, in the podcast with Janine and Hillary in that the USGA museum not only tells the history of golf, but it, it literally is a timeline of U.S. history as well. And it's amazing to see how interwoven the fabric of the game of golf is with U.S. history. So Arnold Palmer has this, or in the Arnold Palmer room, they plastered up in a, in a nice oak setting business cards that he kept from other famous Americans. I, and, and it's insane, like Jonas Salk, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, uh, like the Wright Brothers Cycle Company. I mean— to think how much of an influence he had over such a long period of time. He transitioned from being a golfer to, you know, an actual American icon. And I think you can say that without any, you know, sense of jest at all. Like a true American icon this man was. Um, you know, to me, that that's that's history there in and of itself. Not golf history, just overall history and i thought that was awesome yeah i thought that was cool and the other thing about that is it you know arnold palmer is probably in the the age of television is probably the sports first superstar um so he definitely i think has a place in that you know litany of people on that um you know business cards of famous americans uh to think about how he um transformed you know, being a sports personality into not just excellence on the field, but also being someone who, you know, has endorsements and and does things for the, you know, uh, the the greater good of, of humanity. Uh, I think that's really where his place is. And he does, I think, fit into that that list that he was up there with. Yeah, if you put his business card with those others or his name with those others, it does not stand out as being awkward or forced or weird. You know, it just reads as a history of famous and influential Americans. Yeah, his was the last business card up there. So just for the, the public who wasn't there. Right, right. Um, so left when you walk in is the Bobby Jones room. And the Bobby Jones room is one of the rooms that is completely untouched from when the house was built uh, in the early 1900s. And believe me, there are such cool things. There, there's a, um, a wood plaque that is made out of the wood from the Eisenhower tree at Augusta when they cut it down. But by far, and I think my favorite thing in the USGA museum is over the mantle, over the fireplace, like you would see in Butler Cabin at the end of the Masters Tournament, is the swinging Bobby Jones picture. And that is the original Bob Jones picture. The one at Augusta is a fake. It's a replica. It's a remake of it. And that just blows my mind that the USGA has like that one over on the green jackets in Augusta. Uh, it, it's the coolest thing ever to know that you are standing under that actual original Bobby Jones picture. And the ones that, you know, Tiger and Spieth and Reed and... Uh, Adam Scott all sat under when they won their masters and got their green jackets is not even the real one. No. And that's, yeah. And, and again, we, we took a picture of me standing underneath that, that that's one of the cool, that's one of the cool moments in my, my golf life to just be like, yep, here I am. Uh, you know, feel like I made it. I just need my green jacket to, to really complete the image. That room, <laughs> that, that room in particular was was probably just in terms of like the the style of it, like 
that's probably the room I would want to spend the most time in, just hanging out like with a book and just being surrounded by golf. Um, yeah, I, I could almost see myself kind of just sitting there with, you know, a cup of coffee, maybe light that fireplace up and, uh, you know, read a, you know, a, a golf history book. Uh, I could spend a few hours there doing that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, they have the chair set up and the couch set up there and, and you're allowed to sit in it, which just doesn't even seem like it's something you should be allowed to do. But one time, maybe we go back, Scott, um, you know, we've seen the museum and, and it's awesome. Maybe we take a look at a few more things, but I think maybe one time we go to just play the 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 putting green in the back that they have, the the Pines mm-hmm. putting course, and we just sit there and and see if people interact with us. Because people are going to come in and out and be like, hey, oh, well, hey, guys, can you tell me a little bit about this room? Yeah, sure we can. Of course we can. Come on, sit down. Stay for you, a while. You got it. <laughs> you know, sit, sit for a spell. <laughs> Um, so also down that hallway, they have the Ben Hogan room and then the, the newly anointed Jack Nicholas room. The Ben Hogan room is, is super cool. It tells his history throughout, uh, Texas, you know, growing up and, and, uh, it's really amazing to see the, the private country club history that unfolds in that room. You have stuff from Marion, Seminole, um, Hershey country club, Mm -hmm. uh, just, just some awesome courses and there are some awesome old-time pieces of memorabilia that room itself i think the coolest thing in that room was was his original locker um you know with the shoe rack and the shoe in there the actual towel and everything that was what i was gonna say i was like they had his locker which I, i i thought was really awesome and that you know it's 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 cool it's so simplistic in terms of today's standards, but uh, you know it's like a double wide locker. You could almost sit in it. I mean, there's a bench that fits in it, and uh, I think what it shows is he, you know, he he really was kind of like a blue collar guy. You know, it was no, everything in there is kind of no frills. Um, even though he was, you know, probably one of the. I mean, would you disagree if I said top ten? golfers of all time i'm not sure anyone can disagree with that uh i would say no i'd say you know? probably, yeah but yep. just some some cool artifacts um again how it how it interweaves throughout the history of the u.s i mean there's some uh, amazing uh world war artifacts throughout that room and uh i think a especially to this day and age golfers a almost unknown commodity as to who Ben Hogan was, you know, I, 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 obviously everyone knows Arnold, everyone knows Jack, everyone knows Gary player, you know, they've heard of Bobby Jones because of the masters, but I feel like Sam Snead and Ben Hogan are two older generational golfers that kind of get overlooked by the newcomers to the game. Uh, I definitely agree with that. Cause that's kind of like, that that's the era that's like almost too far gone by at this point. So like again, like and the, if you track the museum the way it's kind of laid out, you know you do have the you know Bob, on the the left hand side you have Bobby Jones, then there's Ben Hogan, and then there's Jack Nicklaus, and that like middle part of that golf history is I, I think almost lost on a lot of people. You know again they know Bobby Jones because they know the Masters, and then after that it's like oh Jack Nicklaus. You know, that that era, Arnold Palmer and Jack. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely agree that Sam Steve Ben Hogan era does kind of go by the wayside a little bit. And I liked how much um, space was devoted to Ben Hogan, too. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think that, that was probably the biggest room uh, of the, the five rooms that are dedicated to people. For sure, for sure. And, and especially has the most uh memorabilia pieces you know it's the biggest collection i mean you know he's a dude who won nine majors from 1946 to 1953 i mean that's in a seven year span i mean imagine that happening today imagine if brooks goes on and and wins uh you know five more and gets to nine in like the next four years i mean that would be uh insane you know and again one of those things where his career was interrupted um by World War II, 
you know, he was a, a captain yes. in the army. Just just awesome stuff, which you just don't realize. And I think a bygone era that no one can – okay, let me rephrase that. Not that no one can appreciate it, but that's something that goes un, unappreciated today because, you know, there's not a golfer aside from Billy Hurley that served in the military, okay? And even Billy Hurley, you know, was not a um, – well, I'm not positive he wasn't a combat veteran, but I don't believe he was because he was at the Naval Academy. So I'm I'm assuming he he wasn't, you know, because he played on the golf team and stuff. And if he if he was, you know, please correct me and and I I mean no uh, disservice to him uh, at all. But Ben Hogan, I'll just look it up. Okay, uh, Ben Hogan is a guy that literally stopped his career for World War II. You know, when when the country basically shut down and the USGA didn't even hold. Uh, championships because of the war and then came back from that and after that won nine major championships i mean that's that's a story that needs to be shouted from the rooftops i mean ben hogan is uh is a guy who uh had a ticker tape parade in new york city right yeah that's a good point yeah 1953 he has the ticker tape parade in new york city i mean that doesn't even get done anymore especially for a golfer and and here's a guy that was from from a small town in Texas, you know, played at a Fort Worth and died in Fort Worth, but was from Stephenville, Texas, and and they're showering him in the Canyon of Heroes in New York City. I mean, just an otherworldly story. And and one of the pieces of the museum that takes some time if you go there, learn the history of it because the the deeper you get into it, the more of a profound effect it has on you and on the game of golf itself. So, uh, yes. So Billy Hurley did serve um, aboard a, a destroyer that was deployed to the Persian Gulf uh, between 2007 and 2009. So I, I guess that's technically considered a combat zone because we were, I think, in the, the midst of the, the war in Iraq at that point. Yeah, correct. So. I believe we were engaged. OK, my apologies. My apologies. Um, but hey, but there's a great example now. If you want to compare Ben Hogan to Billy Hurley's playing career, there's a little bit of a difference there. Um, um, you know. <laughs> huge difference. Uh, and then and then let's not forget, like, you know, um, uh, the accident that that Ben Hogan gets into it at, at 36 years old. You know what I mean? Like, he's in the hospital for 60 days by getting crushed by a bus. Um, I was actually reading about that yesterday just because uh, – not that I fell down an internet wormhole, but I fell down an internet wormhole. Of course. And uh, I found an article that uh, the Smithsonian published about it. And he was in and out of consciousness. And then uh, as soon as he was like completely revived, the first question he asked his wife was, are my golf clubs okay? (laughs) That's a boss right there. It is. And that's, uh, and that was one of the, like his, his wife was in the car he actually threw himself in front of her um, before the bus crashed with them. Uh, he saw it coming, and and basically the you know had he not done that, um, he actually probably would have been killed. So, you know that that's it's a crazy story. Yeah, I mean you you take um, you take Tiger falling behind the wheel asleep, you know, crashing his car because of his own devices, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people say, well, the greatest comeback story ever. I mean, uh, not that I agree or disagree, but when you when you get into the history of what happened with Ben Hogan, I think uh, I think that might sway your opinion a bit. Exactly. Um, and then so the end of that hallway is the new Nicholas room. Uh, you've got an interesting story on this. I am just going to put it out there that I thought the Nicholas room with his impact on the game would be twice the size. Maybe he didn't want it that big. He is not in um, an ostentatious guy that likes to kind of show off, but I, I, there, there could have been so many more pieces in there. And I have a feeling that maybe in the, in the coming years, um, you know, maybe even after Jack's gone and his legacy remains 20, 30 years from now, Maybe we'll get some more pieces from the family. But I, for one, thought that it should have been bigger based upon his contributions to the game. But again, 
Jack not being a, a flashy guy, maybe that's exactly what he wanted. Right. And I, I think there might be a Jack Nicholas museum itself, like just devoted to him. There is in Ohio. Yep, State, maybe. Yep. It's on uh, the campus in Columbus. Right. So I, maybe they have a lot of stuff, too. Um, so they kind of like took what they had and built a room around it. And I do think the one thing about that room real quick before I, I tell my, my little story that I really liked was how it, it, it was not just, uh, you know, here's golf, you know, Jack's golf accomplishments. It touched on a lot of different aspects of what led to, you know, Jack being Jack. So there's, you know, a, a section that's devoted to, you know, Jack and Palmer and player, you know, the big three. Uh, there's a, a part where uh, it talks about him being a family man, about how, you know, family was, you know, most important. There's a, the napkin from his and Barbara's wedding. Uh, yeah, so that was, was awesome. I, I thought, yeah. And I, I thought that was really cool is that it, you know, it wasn't just devoted to him as a golfer. It was, you know, him being Jack Nicholas. Um Having said that, one of the things that I think typifies Jack Nicholas as a uh, a golfer is his competitive nature. And Janine kind of told us this story, and I didn't want to bring it up when we were interviewing her on the podcast because I wasn't sure if it was something that she could kind of relay. But in this month's Golf Magazine, Mike Davis actually tells uh, pretty much the same story. So when they opened the the Jack Nicholas wing. Uh, he and, and Janine, I'm oh, sorry, uh, you know, Mike Davis and Janine walked Jack and Barbara Nicholas around. And as they kind of walked through the museum, they walked through the Arnold Palmer room and Jack leans over to Barbara and he kind of whispers in her ear, but loud enough that other people heard it. Yeah, my room's bigger. Um, so they, you know, the competitive nature with Arnold Palmer you know, kind of continues, you know, I, I think even, you know, till this day. And obviously the two were really good friends. Um, but that that competition, that sense of trying to one up each other, you know, that's still there for Jack. So I yeah, thought that was I mean, a really I thought it was a really great story. And uh, I, I think that's that kind of, you know, puts Jack Nicholas and, and Arnold Palmer's relationship in a nutshell. You don't win 18 majors and defeat some of the greats in the game without that type of competitiveness. Um, it, you know, it, it always struck me that it was like a quiet assassin-like competitiveness. Not like Michael Jordan, mm -hmm. you know, who would let you know, like, this is what I'm going to do to you. And I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do to you. I'll even let you try to stop me doing what I'm going to do to you. But guess what? I'm still going to do to you what I'm going to do to you. Yeah, exactly. And and Jack was just like, look, um, you guys aren't on my level. And uh, that's cool. Have fun. Play for a second. I'm going to go out and win a tournament. Simple as that. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Um, so then then the other part of the museum is, is obviously geared towards like the living history of golf. It goes towards the dawn of American golf, uh, the golden age. Talks about the depression and World War II, the comeback age. Uh, the age of the golf superpowers, which is basically, you know, uh, Jack, the titans of the game, Arnie, Gary Player, all the big time guys that you know and love as as kind of the um, the elder statesmen of the game that are alive today. And then it goes to the global game of how it has transpired across the world. And then the beginning and end portion of that section of the museum, the far right section, is the Hall of Champions which is astronomical when you stand in the middle and just do a complete slow 360 and see the names of every USGA champion in history. You see the original trophies that are there because starting in 85 or 86, Scott, I don't remember exactly which one, the USGA kept the trophies and the winners are now given replicas because of stains on them, dents, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I mean, you're talking about priceless artifacts like you you can't get another original usga am trophy you know what i mean that there's one of them so if that's to be damaged beyond repair or lost or stained um mm -hmm. you've got a big problem so you know humans being what humans are and and mistake prone uh they decide to take them out of the equation 
and now replica is given to all the winners. Um, it's insane when you look at the names of who has won a USGA championship from, you know, a friend of the pod, Byron Meth, the last Publix champion, Jane Park, another friend, uh, U.S. Women's Am champion. Uh, you see Tiger win three U.S. Junior Ams. Then the next three years, he wins three yeah. U.S. Ams. And then you yeah, see all like, those U.S. Open wins. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's a who's who in golf. I mean, there are not too many Hall of Famers that have not won a USGA championship. And then to sit there and stay or stand there and look at the names on these trophies is just, I mean, it, it's astronomical. It's so cool to see them. Yes, absolutely. And having the trophies there and, and to be surrounded by the people who have been awarded that. Um, and, and, you know, we, we're pretty friendly with Jane Park and just knowing what it means to her to have been a USGA champion to then stand in that room and, and realize like all these people essentially have that honor um, and the honor that of being a USGA champion, knowing what it means to them. You know, that was, that was pretty cool. It was pretty cool to see it. Yeah. I sent and, her just a, a text with, with a picture of her name. She's like, Oh my God, you're standing in the, you know, the hall of champions at the USGA museum. Like I love it there. I mean, that, you know, to, to just see the elation come through in a text message um, that, you know, for eternity, she is going to be enshrined there is, is amazing. Yeah. And, and again, it means something. It means something to the people who have earned it. So that to me, to be in that room, that's that and everything else is really cool. But that spot is kind of like the, that's the one where you're kind of like standing on hallowed ground, you know, like these are the, the, the names of the people who have, you know, reached the the ultimate in golf yeah because i mean that's the closest you and i are ever getting to a usga championship yeah exactly and uh and that's okay you know that's okay it's fine also and just uh, we should mention um when you talked about that this you know the wing of the museum that's the history of golf there is a, a lot of emphasis on the importance of you know the women's game uh, in golf. Um, and, you know, we should mention there's also the, the room dedicated to Mickey Wright. Um, so we'd be, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about that. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the coolest things is all the medals and all the trophies. And one of the oldest medals that they have is from the U S women's amateur, which was done in the first year the USGA held any championships. I mean, so to be so progressive back in the day to say, Hey, not only are we identifying the best male golfer, but we're identifying the best female golfer as well because they're out there, they're playing at clubs, uh, they're playing courses, and we're gonna we're gonna do that. Back in a time when women women couldn't even vote, I mean, they didn't even have the the right to vote, and the USGA is promoting them through the game of golf. It's just incredible. Um, and right, like you said, the Mickey Wright room next to the Arnold Palmer room. Uh, just again, just to see a woman's influence in the game and how much of an influence they had again at a time when, you know, a lot of women in the U S were being treated as second class citizens, uh, for someone to rise to such prominence in such an elitist sport, or at least thought of as an elitist sport, uh, of golf is, uh, enduring and, and the USGA does an amazing job of showcasing that. Now, Scott, uh, behind the Hall of Champions, there's a little door there. And you can't get into that little door without a uh, um, special scan card as well as some, uh, you know, uh, superhero high-techness, if you will. And mm. before we go downstairs there, why don't you let the people know what's behind that first door? Uh, the first door is the library. Which now, is go ahead. No, I was just gonna say this this, this is not included in your ten dollar admission fee. <laughs> no, they basically said like you need to write us a letter and say this is the book or movie or whatever that I need access to the library for. This is what I'm looking for, and then a librarian pulls it for you and you go and you 
probably put on nitrile gloves and, you know, go get what you need. And that's probably the only time you're getting back there. It's funny that you mentioned putting on the gloves because Hillary told us that she has had Mike Davis. Now, everyone knows Mike Davis and you know him from the game of golf. You know him from setting up the U.S. Open courses back in the day and now being the head of the USGA. And she said from you to someone researching uh, golf courses in Scotland in 1850 to 1855 to Mike Davis, you are putting on gloves. You are not getting past the first rack of books. And one of our curators is bringing it out to you. Um, You you are talking literally. This is this is not a joke. Almost every single periodical written about the game of golf in some form or another. This is how beyond insane the library is. I found a book from 1650. And it was entitled 1650 British Golf Grasses. Yes. And by the way, when Dan says he found that book, we were walked by it. And Dan happened to see it on the shelf. It's not like, like I we said, were, I found it. It's not like we had to walk around and be like, oh, this book looks cool. Let me check this out. No, I was, I, was, I was not allowed to open it. Uh, I was allowed to gaze upon it. But I mean, I just... Uh, insanity insanity to think of a book that is four almost 400 years old i i mean you know it's very difficult in this day and age for us to wrap our heads around things like that that have been around for so long because we live in the age of you know five second clips and and one second attention spans i mean look at instagram you flick through it and if you don't like something within like half a second, you flick past it. You know what I mean? Um, yep. And and this this book was so specific; it was only about British golf grasses. <laughs> like that's nuts. And they've got the original copy there. Yeah, exactly. Um. So yeah, so they walked us past. I mean, just uh, you could spend days, not hours, days and weeks, uh, before you even visually saw. Every book. I, I, I would love to sit down and just read a few pages of text from from some of them. But we didn't have time for that, Scott, because in in true leave the pin fashion and going behind the scenes and giving our listeners uh, what they want, we were allowed entry into the USGA vault. Like other museums, the USGA is able to display about 5% of their entire collection above ground that the general public gets to see. of their collection is stored in the climate-controlled vault underneath. Double door reinforced. The entryway to this vault literally looks like the back of any office building. There's like broken down shelving. There's like a chair with one leg sitting there. Mm. And you open this nondescript door, and then you see the technology that is put into keeping people out of the vault. It was insane, Scott. There was two doors. There was the nice, like, wooden door that you would see, like, in any old house. And then behind that was a big steel door. Yeah, it was like getting into the Avengers mansion. <laughs> yep. And, and at, at, at this point, I do want to throw a shout-out to Hillary. Um, if there is any museum director who cares more for the things that they're responsible for... I seriously doubt it. Uh, I really get the impression that, in, and you and Dan are pretty well-built guys, um, if you or him had tried to walk off with any of the artifacts, she would have wrestled you to the ground. Killed us. I believe killed us. Yeah. So just a huge shout-out to Hillary. And if you're wondering who's, like, the people, who the person responsible for making sure the history of the game of golf is secure it's her and you can sleep soundly at night yeah uh before we get into what we saw down there well the things we can at least talk about that we saw um one of the coolest things or or i guess depending on whose vantage point you you take or whose viewpoint you take um one of the most interesting things was the fact that a lot of times uh, pro golfers people in the game top ranked amateurs will um donate items to the museum 
and and the museum works mostly on donations. They do have a budget when things come up through auction houses or people that are wanting to sell priceless items, quote unquote. But most of it is donation. And what's real interesting is when people come back to the museum and they've donated something and they want to hold it. And so you would think, well, I mean, that's mine. Let me just have it. Uh, no, it's not. The second you give it to the USGA, it's theirs. But that sounds harsh. But let me tell you that the USGA will do an infinitely better job at housing, storing, loving, and taking care of your item than you could ever do by leaving it in your house. So anyone that's given something to the USGA, understand that even if it's not shown, it is under lock and key. It is in pristine condition. Um, Scott, Dan, and I can vouch for seeing things down there that if you took out of the vault and gave it to someone today, maybe they gave it to the USGA 50, 60 years ago, it would look identical to the time frame that it came from. Mind-blowing stuff, Scott. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So we get in, and the first thing you see is this row of just tour-used golf bags from Patty Berg to John Daly to Jackie Robinson, Amelia Earhart. I mean, just like, again. Yeah, there was was a Ronald Reagan one up there. Right, the Ronald Reagan one, which wasn't even opened. Um you know, a, a who's who of American and world history. Yep. So not only is there golf memorabilia down there, but there are priceless works of art from people that you've never heard of to Rembrandts, which Hillary tells this amazing story. She's a, a big um, Dutch and Flemish uh, artist. Fan, I believe it's what she studied in college. She was an art history major. And every week during her birthday week, one of the curators of the museum brings the golf Rembrandt up to her office and hangs it in her office for that week. Um, you know, it, it, it's like having a Van Gogh in, in your house and, and it just sitting there for a week. I mean, just mind-blowing stuff. Um, we saw, uh, you know original feathery gutter percher golf balls we saw tees from you know the 15 1600s um if you if you had to name uh, it's tough to name one thing scott but in the vault if you had to name one thing down there that you were just blown away by what would it be oh um I, i'll be uh, and so there's two things um one thing is and uh, the reason I'm blown away by it is because it's what I didn't see. There was a drawer um, where the the golf clubs were stored that was marked, you know, Champions Clubs, and I actually and I said to Hillary, I was like, oh, you know, can we see, you know, some of the the clubs and the way they're stored? And she's like, yeah, but not that drawer. And I was like, oh, okay. She's like, yeah. And then she opened up another drawer. I was like. This is really cool, but just what's in that drawer? And she's like, "Yeah, I, I, I can't, I can't tell you." So I was just blown away by that because I'm just wondering, well, what's in that drawer? You know, it's like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. What's what's <laughs> in the briefcase? Um, exactly. Uh, I thought the the, I thought the draw with the presidential memorabilia. So, uh, clubs from Bush, Reagan, Carter in there was was outstanding. So that was the other thing that I thought was really, really cool. And for me, and the, the thing, it didn't strike me until as I was driving home. They had one of John F. Kennedy's clubs on display out in the, the museum in one of the exhibits. Um, what struck me is that the rest of his clubs are probably down there, too. Right. So there's the one that's out, and then everything else is sitting in that vault somewhere. That, to me, like, that's just mind-blowing. Because, it's, it's, again, it's all that stuff that the public does not see that it, it just has to be incredible. I actually have a third thing that I thought was really cool. Okay. So it just – and it's just one of those things, like, by, by pure happenstance, she opened up a drawer that had medals in it. 
And one of the medals, and I don't, re- I don't know what tournament it was for, is maybe like the U.S. you know mid am or something like that. Uh, but two of the medals belonged to a gentleman named Ray Billows, who uh, had played most of his golf at a club I used to belong to, and those medals were on display at the club in this, you know, uh, you know the right right by the lobby, a little history of the club exhibit, and just. Again, by pure happenstance, she happens to open that drawer and there's those medals. It's like, oh, I was like, you know, these belong to, you know, someone who used to be a member at my club. And, you know, they were at a, an exhibit there. And she's like, yeah, his daughter just donated to, the, to a, you know, donated them to the museum fairly recently. And, I, and I'm thinking like that club closed that museum. That little exhibit obviously got shut down. They gave the stuff back to the daughter and the daughter's like, well, what am I going to do with this? I'm going to donate it to the museum. So just having that come full circle for me was kind of really cool. Yeah, it's it's I mean, it's awesome, obviously, when you have a connection to it, you know, and those are things that you had seen outside in the wild. And now the USGA cares for it and walked past on a really frequent basis for the better part of three years, not really thinking anything of it. And now they're, you know, in this, you know, climate controlled vault, like, you know, that that club for me is a, a it was a, a special place until it closed. And seeing that there, it's kind of like, well, the club's still gone, but at least this part of it's taken care of. Right. So. Right. Um, my favorite thing from the vault, and I didn't even see it right away because I was looking at some of the uh, vintage artifacts that they had in kind of their little greenskeeping section, how they used to cut holes. There was rotary yeah. mo- uh, mowers, which were just uh, super cool. Um, and I was over there kind of eyeing those up. And I hear Dan, train on main, say, uh, what's this? Can you open this one? She's like, no, no, we can't open that one. And I got over there, and it's a draw that is just labeled Everest. And... I said, well, what, what's in there? She's like, oh, these are the golf clubs that were brought up to Mount Everest to hit golf balls. Yeah. Now, you know, before the, the Instagram and Twitter and Facebook day and age where people did stupid things for notoriety, somebody had lugged clubs up Mount Everest, a mountain that people are dead and frozen on. Like, there's dead bodies frozen on yes. Mount Everest. Um so much so that the organizations that guide hikers up there pray that it never melts because they have no idea what they would do with all of the dead bodies that are frozen on the mountain. And to think that the game had such an impact on somebody in the 60s and 70s for them to carry a golf club and a ball up Mount Everest and then hit one up there is absolutely mind-blowing to me. To think that that was a thought in this person's head, in addition to all their other planning to get ready for Everest, oh, I must bring my six iron and yes, make a ball. All that other gear, and then I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to grab a wedge and some shots off the map. When I get right, up. right. When, when packing, just... like, light and economically is of the essence, you know, when every extra ounce counts... <laughs> Someone had to bring a golf club up there. Yeah. I, I, I just, uh, the first time someone did that, just the, the face that whoever the Sherpa made was, probably, <laughs> was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, yeah, I can't believe I brought this stupid European up the mountain for them to hit a golf ball. Yes, exactly. That's just good stuff. Um, so then the only thing that we didn't get to experience was the putting green because the putting green is, is open from March to October. It's called the Pines Putting Course. It's very reminiscent of the Himalayas at St. Andrews, of Thistledew at Pinehurst, and it's phenomenal. It is great fun. It is designed by Gil Hance. It's included with your um, with your payment to the museum. I think you pay mm-hmm. five – it's five. Okay, yeah. Well, it's sorry. Five bucks. Yeah, to to tour the museum and to play it ends up being fifteen. But you obviously have to pay for museum entry in order to play it. That's what I was getting at. Um, gotcha. But they have old school style golf balls. They have featheries. 
uh, gutta perchers. Um, they have uh, wound balls, and they're all replicas. Obviously, they're not going to let you hit you know balls from 1890. But right. they also have replica putters from the Schenectady to the um, the oh, Calamity Jane. Calamity Jane. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Jane. I was going to say from the Jane Park. Thank you from the Calamity Jane. Probably, uh, you know that that you get to choose from. Um, and it's a wildly undulating course. I mean, you can have a blast out there. And the USJ employees meet out there for lunch. They have barbecues in the summertime. They do little putting games and stuff. And it is uh, it's it's worth the trip in and of itself if you're not that far from it. But it's just another way that the USGA is attracting golfers to the game to say, look, not only can you view artifacts that no one else has because Literally, we have one-of-a-kind artifacts, uh, but we also have an entryway into golf. So maybe your spouse doesn't play, but you want to take them to the museum and spend the day with them and then go someplace you know, near Liberty Corner to get something to eat. Well, here's a great way to get them involved. Maybe you're bringing kids that don't actually play yet, but look, everybody can putt. Like Everyone can play mini golf, and this is just a real life-sized um, – true grass version of mini golf and it's a blast i can't wait to go back uh before the u.s open sit down with them again and get everyone from leave the pin to play the pines putting course we'll definitely have a good time out there yeah that would be that would be pretty cool that'll be uh that'll be a fun fun trip down and so uh and so that kind of wrapped up our day at the usj museum we were fortunate enough to head over to their administration offices and toured them. Um, that as is you definitely imagine, part of the tour. N- well, no, no, no. You're not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is not included in your ten dollars. You cannot walk next door and and get into Mike Davis's office or sit in Jason Gore's chair. Not that we, not that we did that. We Sorry, did Jason. Things, but. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you can, uh, you can do that stuff, but, uh, put it this way. It is reminiscent of any big time corporate office in the new day and age in which not only are there amazing technological advances, uh, in workspace design, but there's also amazing advances in play design. And, um, I could not see it being boring going to work if you work for the USGA. Now, the only thing we didn't get to see which we will see next time, is the Research and Testing Center. And that I am beyond excited to get to. Yeah, that's actually, that's something I'm, I'm very excited about. And I do, I, so part of my, my real job, um, you know, does involve, you know, providing kids with an authentic, uh, you know, experience as it relates to science and technology. Um, and I, I did sort of, start the the wheels turning about possibly taking uh you know a, a small group of kids to that place to get a, a an education tour so you know sometimes real life and and golf life have to interact well yeah i mean golf life is real life you know it's the way it is um, exactly. Speaking of of golf life, let uh, we gotta let people know that if you purchased a divot repair tool and a ball marker, they are stamped, they are created, and they are on their way. Joe from Legend Golf is going to get those out next week. Um, our online store for apparel is completely restocked from t-shirts to hats to hoodies to sweatshirts to uh, ringer tees, three quarter sleeves. Everything is restocked and if you want to get in our next little contest that's already going strong i've got the first batch going out on tuesday but if you send us a picture of you leaving the pin in while putting we're going to send you one of our brand new leave the pin podcast vinyl stickers uh anything else scotto on this snowy dreary day uh i think we're in good shape i mean other than the fact that it's snowing and that pushes golf season back a little bit no i think i'm good I uh, I would be remiss if I did not mention that my pick for this week at the American Express, Tony Finau, is in fourth place. Scott, oh, I'm finally going to win. I mean, again, there's still two rounds, so we'll see what happens. Uh, I'm still, you know, holding out hope for Paul Casey. And again, 
it could swing any moment. So it, we'll see. It 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 might. That's a very funny pun there, Scott. Swing. I get it. Uh, um, yes, right. Right now, your boy, however, has moved up to T three. Mm-hmm. Um, he's at fourteen under six back. Uh, ha- and I would point out that Mr. Paul Casey four under on the day. Uh, he's seven back. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is a beyond birdie and eagle fest. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's well, it's it's insane. Someone's gonna win it like twenty six under. Andrew a, Landry on the day is is six under through ten. So yeah, yeah. Well, Finau Finau shot sixty two yesterday. It was ten under. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's it's a corn ferry tour event. Honestly, uh, speaking of which, if you have PGA Tour Live Sunday through Wednesday, corn ferry tour is going to be live on PGA Tour Live. I am very excited about that because obviously Sunday I'm off and Monday for Martin Luther King Day, I am off as well. So I'm psyched. Uh, Mike Creed is down there caddying for Tyson Alexander as always. And uh, he just sent me a picture of a Snickers bar. So why did you send me a picture of a Snickers bar, buddy? He says, because there's no dessert for me this week. They're $5.62 each. Okie dokie. <laughs> So he said, I cannot wait to get back home to the States and actually be able to eat and spend money. Mm. Uh, well, I can't wait for that to happen for him, too. <laughs> we should maybe send him a box of Snickers to bring with him on the road. That might maybe maybe uh, in Savannah. I'll have to hook him up with some of those. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, the drill people either get busy golfing or get busy dying. Have a good one.